started. Uh, so welcome everybody and thanks for coming to uh, this week's edition of the NDISC speaker series. Um, today we have Jill Hazelton, who's an assistant professor of uh, strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College. Uh, she's here to present a paper called No Such Thing as the Little War, Beliefs, Intellectual History, and Liberal Military Intervention. Uh, Jill received her PhD from Brandeis and her BA and MA from the University of Chicago. Um, before she went and got her PhD, she spent 12 years uh, as a reporter for the Associated <coughs> Press, reporting from all over the world, including places like Mongolia uh, and many other places that I think would be really neat to visit and I wouldn't want to live there, um, but I would love to hear stories about it. Um, before she begins her talk, I just want to flag a couple things for you guys. I'm sending around the Notre Dame uh, International Security Center email list, so please sign up if you haven't already. Uh, I also want to give a shout out for our final speaker series event um, of the semester, our final regular event, um, which is going to be Josh Schifferinson from Boston University next Tuesday, November 6th. Uh, the title of his talk is Great Power Entrapment, Reconsidered Again. So please do come and attend that, but make sure you go and vote first because it's election day. Um, we also have a, a slew of events uh, that week end and into the next week of November. Um, so please do check out our website, ndisc.nd.edu. Finally, um, I'll be taking names to keep a list of people who have questions for Jill when she's done with her presentation. Um, if you just want to be added to the list, you give me one finger. If you have a point that is relevant immediately to the subject at hand, show me two fingers and I will bump you to the top of the list. If you abuse that and you actually don't have a comment that matters to what's going on, I will banish you to the end of the list uh, for future comments. And with that, um, I will please join me in welcoming Jill and let's hear it from her. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. I've had a couple of great meetings with students so far, and you're an impressive bunch. What can I say? Uh, I don't have to introduce myself again. Rose has handled that. Um, I will start out by saying that the, the puzzle here, the big puzzle, is why Western great powers seem to have such a hard time and pay such high costs when they're facing a far weaker adversary. If you think about the preponderance of power, this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you looked at my paper, you will have seen that this is a brand new project. This is the first seed of a paper that will be my second book. So I'm looking forward to the comments that, and the questions that you guys have today. I'm still getting my ideas in order. To that end, I went and walked around the pond this morning. One of my hosts at breakfast suggested that as a good walk. I was looking for docks. I wanted to put them in a row. This is one of my suggestions for my students when they're writing their essays, to get their ducks in a row, get their ideas in order. So I found some swans. I found some geese. They weren't in a row. This was not helpful. I found some birds in a row. They're not ducks. They're geese. So I'm hoping that this afternoon we can line up some ducks, even if they're dibbling ducks, which I think is really one of the cutest things in the world when they go upside down that way. 
So this is the outline of my talk. Obviously, there's not much more to say about it than this. I will try and stay on schedule, because at this point, I'd much rather hear what you all have to say than to drone on past about half an hour myself. Start signaling if, if I ramble on. Um, the title of the talk comes from a speech by the Duke of Wellington to Parliament in 1838. He was concerned at this point about French-Canadian insurrection in Canada. And the parallel is not exact between the kinds of cases that I'm interested in and the immediate concern that Wellington and the British faced. But I found this really caught my imagination. Why can't a great power have a little war? Does it not have some little interests, perhaps, that are not worth great effort, great cost? So this was evocative for me. Um, in a nutshell, so you know where I'm going, there, I have a series of questions about great power behavior when it comes to much smaller states, client states. Um, why should a great power care about the domestic politics of small states? This does not make particular sense. Is it actually necessary to their security the way great powers seem to think it is? If it's not, why is it not? If it's not and they think it is, why that? Um, why do great powers drag on these wars? You can think of any number of very costly examples, current and past. Uh, why do great powers double down sometimes and make these wars even bigger? escalate geographically, escalate temporally, escalate in terms of power used. To boil it down, what explains variation in liberal great power security-seeking strategies when they use military intervention to try and advance their interests? In a nutshell, my argument at this point, and it's very preliminary, is that bad historical analogies and certain beliefs about liberal values lead policymakers to sometimes set very ambitious goals for military interventions. And we have variation across all three of these variables, these factors. Uh, we may have bad historical analogies raised for some contemporary problems and not others. We have policymakers who hold certain beliefs at some times who are not in power at other times. So we have variation on all three points. And I should mention, because I think this is going, that one reason this is going to be such a helpful discussion for me, that this is a new area for me, going into beliefs, ideas. I tend to be a sort of materialist, hard power kind of person. So I'm looking forward to your thoughts on that aspect in particular. So why does this matter? We can think of a whole variety of ways in human terms, in economic terms, financial terms, environmental terms, state reputational terms. Investing in a war, making it big, and continuing to try and obtain objectives that may not be obtainable has very high costs. Uh, we have the 
napalm girl from Vietnam. We have in the lower image a young woman in uh, Sector 60 at Arlington, the GWAT sector, which is growing far too rapidly on the grave of her partner. We can also think in more particular costs to the state. I do not expect you to read these eye charts. These are representative of the high costs in the GWAT particularly. We could also look at Vietnam as another example. We could look <coughs> at campaigns by other Western great powers. The basic point that I'm trying to make here, oh, sorry, I have to use my right hand and my left hand, and that's not always the easiest thing. So the point here is that the costs are high. I don't think I need to persuade you of this. This is a given. This is one of my foundational points. I think it's also useful to talk a little more about what I mean when I talk about military intervention. We can think of it as a spectrum, a typology. You can think about taking over a piece of territory from another state. You can think about taking it over for a certain amount of time to meet your political and military goals. You can think about it in terms of supporting the government in power. It's also possible to think about supporting the challenger to the government in power, but that's not an area that I'm looking at for this project at this particular time. Uh, this, the scope of the project may expand considerably, may need to contract. This is one of the things that you may have thoughts on. Um, at this point, in terms of this particular typology, I'm looking at all but the last two categories. In terms of the difference between liberal intervention and intervention more broadly, the idea is what the political objectives are, and then for me in this investigation, how they came to be set that way. Why some interventions have very ambitious goals, political goals, and some do not. So examples, pacification in Vietnam, economic, political, and social development of a viable economy. That's very ambitious. We can agree or disagree on whether it's necessary, valuable, important, a lot of other things. But I, th I think we might all agree that it's ambitious. Same thing with NATO's objective for Afghanistan, a self-sustaining, moderate, and democratic government. That would be nice. It's very ambitious. And the same thing with Yemen. And, uh, Ten years ago, Yemen was a very different place, or uh, eight, eight years ago. Yemen was a very different place, and at that point, this was still a highly ambitious set of goals address the profound political, economic, and social challenges that support terrorism. Wow. This is what we think of as nation building or state building. So some examples. This is from Elizabeth Saunders' book on military intervention, Leaders at War. This is a set of cases that she has selected. I also look at Patrick Reagan's work, John Owen, some others. Um, to pull together the domain that I'll do case selection from, and I'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. The idea here is just to give you an impression of the kinds of cases I'm talking about when I say military intervention. And we could, we could have an interesting discussion coding these, which had more liberal objectives, more ambitious objectives, which had less. But at this point, this is just intended as some examples. 
drilling down a little bit more deeply, here are differences in objectives in cases that might otherwise be considered similar. South Korea and South Vietnam, same time period, uh, some overlap in administrations, same region, very different US approach to governance in South Vietnam versus South Korea. There were efforts to liberalize the South Korean state far less and far less vehemently than what the US was trying to do in Vietnam. El Salvador versus Nicaragua, another obvious one. Thailand, Taiwan, the Philippines, Greece. We see a significant amount of variation both during the Cold War and after in the kinds of political objectives that liberal great powers select when they decide to intervene in an internal conflict. So when I talk about historical analogies, particularly bad historical analogies, which we all know policymakers are prone to, um, Malaya is probably the most prominent example. The, the story that commentators and pundits and policymakers believe and present about the Malayan emergency is one of British construction of a pluralistic liberal state as it was freeing its colony after the Second World War. In fact, during the so-called emergency, here's a chair. Um, in fact, during the emergency, liberalization was quite limited and the degree of violence against civilians, which is not what we think is a, of as a liberal tendency, was indeed quite high. Use of force and, and then also specifically violence. So there's a certain disconnect between the stories we hear about how well this type of campaign goes and what is achieved at what cost and what actually happened. So the narrative, I argue, influences what policymakers think they can do with a new problem that they think is similar to the old problem that was solved so elegantly. So my research question, getting down to some brass tacks. First, what explains this variation? And then more specifically, under what conditions does a Western great power set itself these ambitious goals for military, military intervention into an internal conflict. So you can see a number of ways in which I'm scoping this question. I'm looking at internal conflict. I'm looking at military intervention into internal conflict. I'm looking at Western great powers. So I'm trying to scope it down to something manageable. And I may or may not be getting close. You all will tell me. Um, one thing, my intention, although this talk is about the US, my intention is to also look at the UK. And it may actually be that the determinants of the choice of political objective vary in the two cases. Generally, the Brits have been more willing to walk away from their interventions, and they've been more willing to scale down their political objectives over time when they're not making progress. Um, so it may ultimately be that there is not one big answer here, but two answers. Existing explanations, once again, an eye chart. Don't strain yourself. Uh, there is a lot of very interesting work on this question broadly writ. We have structural explanations and we have agency-based explanations. And I am not going to go into any great detail here. It's on the paper. 
basically the point is to show you that here's agency explanations to show you that my intention is first of all to build on existing work not to say burn it all down I have the new and right answer so this is a this is an intention to keep on building and to explain oops there we go why the, why the explanations we have don't answer my question. Some don't look at intervention into internal conflict. Some don't look at post-Cold War interventions. Some only look at post-Cold War interventions. This is why I cleverly separated that list of cases into Cold War and post-Cold War, to plant the seed in your mind that, oh gosh, there were these kinds of interventions with ambitious goals during the Cold War and after. So this is not simply a structural issue. Um, we don't see explanations for differing choices made by the same administration. We see variation there. So basically, really interesting, rigorous work so far doesn't answer my question. The leading alternative explanation that leaps to mind is obviously that a government that sets Gesundheit, its political objectives for an intervention, does so after a careful, systematic, and rigorous examination of all the possibilities, of the characteristics of the target state, of what characteristics might support ambitious or less ambitious political objectives, of what characteristics might not be so supportive, of, of what role things like nationalism might play. I would love to find that government works this way. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, my own theory at this point, I'm not sure we can really call it a theory, my own thinking on this has three background elements or characteristics. The first is that this is a puzzle in theoretical terms too. Uh, why powerful states should care about the domestic politics of small weak states? Um, why regime types should really matter at all? And if it was a Cold War concern, uh, function of bipolarity, why should it continue in the post-Cold War world? I, what, the, what this leads us towards as a larger conclusion, a uh, bigger so what, is the idea that when liberal states veer from realpolitik choices, it ends badly that may be where we end up, we'll see. So these three motivating ideas or beliefs, and at this point I'm using the two terms, ideas and beliefs interchangeably. The belief that more democracy means greater security for everybody. The belief that democratic or liberal values are universal and thus easily spread. And the belief that spreading these values via military intervention can be accomplished relatively easily at relatively low cost. This is where the historical analogies come in. In practice, operationalizing this, 
The DV is variation in U.S. and U.K. security seeking strategies, uh, 1945 to present. IVs are these three ideas or beliefs. And what I see going on at this point, based on the work I've done so far, is I think that these factors are shaping great power policymaker choices about um, what types of political objectives they want to set. I'm not arguing for a direct causal relationship. I doubt I would actually find one. I think another, a number of other things are involved in, in these choices as, as well. These are grand strategic choices. But at this point, I'm looking for some association. Is there a relationship? In terms of research design, this is an historical evalu evaluative study. Once again, it's not necessarily about causation. It's to try and understand what the beliefs were driving these choices, which sometimes turn out very, very badly for the great power. Um, universe is all great power interventions. Um, domain is narrowed down in practice to the US and UK. And then I'm explicitly not looking at normative interventions because the variation that I'm interested in is the normative versus less normative choice of political objective. In terms of methodology, structured focus comparison, my best friend. Uh, this is a series of questions to ask of the material. What are policymakers thinking about when they set their objectives for an intervention. What are they drawing on out of history? What are they drawing on in terms of their beliefs? What are their supporting arguments about why X or Y is a good or a bad idea? Cases, um, I think what's most important at this point is data richness for the process tracing and then similarity con to contemporary policy problems because this issue of setting extremely ambitious goals is still with us. Um, a continuation uh, of this set of questions might include why do states double down on their ambitious objectives when they're not making progress? Why do they just keep trying? At this point, I'm starting out looking simply at the decision on the political objective, ambitious or not. I'm thinking about uh, Jebel Akhtar and Dofar in Oman as a paired set of cases that would be interesting because so many of the background conditions are the same and the British goals were very different. Um, although interestingly in Dofar ultimately the Brits recognized that they were not going to get the degree of liberal reforms that they were looking for and they accommodated themselves to that and defeated the insurgency. So I think Vietnam going in and then the escalate to get out decision might be an interesting set of paired cases. There are some background uh, conditions that remain the same. And then I'm thinking maybe Lebanon. I don't know. I'm really torn about what cases to look at at this point. And maybe two, paired, two sets of paired cases is enough. Obviously, there's only so much one can do. Um, I'm hoping we can get some ducks in a row. We have a variety of ducks that are lined up for us. Um, 
I'm not always sure that my students understand when I talk about getting their ducks in a row. And I'm told that the Navy version of that is getting your stuff in a sock. But I think that ducks are frankly a lot cuter. So I, I stick with ducks. Uh, I have some takeaway points. And I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. So, so thank you very much. I, I had a couple of questions. Uh, I guess there is one methodological question, which is how exactly would you determine the goals or objectives for intervention? And how do you go back and, and, and see those in the past? And how do you determine what is or is not ambitious? You mentioned whether you mentioned that some of these goals are ambitious, others are not. How do you evaluate that? So that's one one set of questions. And the other set of questions is about other agents within the state. I'm talking. I'm thinking specifically about the military-industrial complex, but you could take it to other agents with interests in these interventions within the state. How did these feature in policymaking? Good question. Starting us off, let me flip back to a slide that will, uh, I think, help us with your first question. Let's see here. Um, Okay, here we go. We have a spectrum or a typology of different types of political objectives for the uh, intervention, whatever the target state is. Uh, maybe establishment of democracy. I would categorize that as ambitious. Uh, whatever the target state is, I would cat categorize that as a very, very big political goal. Less ambitious goals might be um, creating more effective and efficient governance, whatever the regime type is, just making the government work better. Uh, the political objective might be making sure that the threatened government has a firmer hold on power, is simply more secure in office. It might be um, military and political defeat of the adversary, the challenger, the insurgency. That seems to me less ambitious than some of these goals involving governance. Um, might be a reduction in political violence. That's a totally appropriate political objective. Uh, it's one that the United States has said it's interested in in Syria, for example. That seems to me a worthy cause. Um, peace deal, that's a political objective. We can discuss whether that's more or less ambitious in any particular circumstance, but I would suggest that it's Given what we know about state building, I mean, the actual process, not the hope for uh, here's what we should do normative literature, um, I think a peace deal is probably less ambitious than improved governance. And then long-term political stability. That seems to me, again, a reasonable political objective that is fairly ambitious because it's long-term. There's a long time horizon, it might be more ambitious than uh, defeating the adversary, which is fairly short term. Um, but I think we can code these things on a spectrum from more to less ambitious. 
In terms of how to, determine the, how to determine what these goals are for any particular intervention, this is where the, uh, the sources come in. Look at um, contemporaneous documents, speeches, internal discussions, uh, notes, exchanges of letters, speeches. So internal documents, documents for the public documents internally for other states, discussions within the particular administration, and stated goals. What is the administration X saying its political objective is for intervention Y and target state Z? Um, in terms of other agents within the state interested in intervention, it's an interesting question, and I think it might be beyond the scope of what I'm looking at at this point. There's always the pulling and tugging within an administration and within the other institutions that make up the government, um, official and unofficial uh, institutions. But the question for me is the policymakers, the deciders themselves, and of course I have to narrow down policymakers to a limited number of titles. Um, they are getting information, persuasion, pushing, tugging from a whole variety of sources in the government, outside the government, inside the country, outside the country. So what I look at in the contemporaneous documents is what they say is influencing them, what they state as a reason for decision X or policy choice Y. Does that make sense? Can I ask a follow-up question? So the follow-up, I guess, would be about the goals that you stated for intervention. And it seemed that you had this continuum uh, of, of what, what are more ambitious and less ambitious goals. But it seemed to me that you're kind of leaving the state in which, or the country, or, or whatever, in which the intervention is happening outside. And it's, I'm, I'm not sure I, I would agree with that, because some countries, I, I would say, are more aligned with the, that continuum of, of objectives, while others are less so. And wouldn't you say that by Using this one size fit all continuum, you're kind of like missing uh, on that? I agree completely. Let me just, where am I going here? Uh, where's my alternative explanation? Sorry. Okay, here we go. This would, this is the alternative explanation um, that I have to consider when I'm looking at the evidence. Is the evidence for this? Is the evidence for my theory? This alternative explanation, which is sort of the ideal type of how a government would go about deciding on what its intervention goals should be, um, involves the characteristics, the interests, the geography, the economy, the leadership of the target state. We 
typically don't see, even in State Department reports, uh, reports, the gazillion military reports on other countries, we don't necessarily see this kind of analysis when it comes to policy choices. Now, within administrations, we'll sometimes see this sort of debate going on. There's the um, George Ball um, argument about Vietnam, where he takes the devil's advocate view and he says, here are all the reasons why this would be a terrible idea to try and build a democracy in South Vietnam. But that didn't get much traction. And there is a view that he, even though he was asked to do this, he really wasn't taken all that seriously when he did do it. So this is the ideal type. This takes all the characteristics of the target state into account. And I completely agree that one would hope that a military intervention would take all these things into account. If I find that this is the case, I will be jubilant. It will mean my theory's wrong, but this is how government should work, right? question on this point. I have a comment to follow up on the other question that you had. Um, I think rather than theorizing um, ambition based on the type or typology of intervention, a better way to theorize or to support your argument is to find a baseline for what ambition is based on what rational calculation could be, and then find the gap between what is rationally possible and what the policymakers think are possible. So that gap would show ambition, ambitious or not, I think. Um, it would be a better way of theorizing that gap or what ambitious really means because to say that um, creating a, de a democratic state in like the Philippines would be very different than creating a democratic state in Myanmar, for instance. Um, so I think a better theorization would again be the gap. And then going back to your argument about wishful thinking, then if you find a big gap, that means there is support for wishful thinking, right? And not the rational calculation, which is your alternative explanation. Thank you. I have to think about that. My first thought is that this might take me too far in the direction of focusing on, and, and this is similar to the point that we just heard. I think the larger context here is that you guys want to hear more about the target state. The target state is what matters. And that's exactly my point. The target state matters. But we don't particularly see policymakers, I argue, paying as much attention as we would like to the target state in setting political goals for what the great power can achieve. You see what I mean? I definitely have to think about this, though. Ilana? Thank you for your talk. Um, I understand that part of your goal here is to narrow your case universe, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you're choosing not to focus on intervention in support of rebel groups and, um, and suggest that if you're not going to look at those cases, if you narrow your definition of the cases when you're talking more theoretically, because right now you're saying my case universe is all potentially all interventions, but it's not. It's all interventions in support of the government. So I'm thinking, well, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, Angola, why not these? Because these could potentially be for very ideological reasons. Um, and then a second 
point sort of related to this general idea of focusing on the target state, which is not what you're focusing on. But I was wondering how you address the alternative explanations, not as much about the target state and characteristics of the state, but characteristics of the conflict. For example, how long the conflict has been going on at the time of the intervention. Great points. Why not insurgent intervention? To try and keep a handle on something vast. Um, and that's not necessarily the most sophisticated scholarly defense of a choice. But at that point, that's where I am. I would be, I think it would be fascinating to also look at support for insurgencies. The problem with that, I think, is that Typically, when a liberal gate power supports an insurgency, and the, okay, no, the countries actually support my argument. Typically, when a great power supports, an, a liberal great power supports an insurgency, it's to topple the government and create a client state, right? Uh, to create a partner or an ally. Um, and typically, we don't see a lot of liberal great power attention to how that ally to be governs, either as a rebel government, as a shadow state, or once it gets into power. So I think that including, and argue me out of this if you want, but I think including decisions to intervene to back the insurgency would take us away from the question of variation in political objectives. In terms of making uh, this scope part of the research question, yes, thank you. Um, in terms of alternative the alternative explanation, including characteristics of the conflict, yes, thank you. I think the puzzle is really interesting. Um, I have a question on the framing and then a question on the theory. So on the framing, I, I, I think there's a disconnection between the framing of uh, um, the making the little wars big and then the research question that to explain the political objectives of the military interventions. As I see it, the making, big war, make, make, making little wars big is the outcome of these interventions, mm -hmm. but the political objectives um, is objective. So there's a you know difference between outcomes and objectives. I haven't thought about this, of course, as long as you do. But my first thought is that maybe if it's a book project, you can make the little wars big as the you know the big book project, and then devote a couple of chapters on the political objectives. First reaction to that. Thank you. Yeah. And then um, on the theory, the three conditions that you think um, countries are more likely to accompany intervention with liberalization. Um, I enter. I, I. I just. I'm wondering under what conditions do they vary as variables? Um, the third one, um, the 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 low cost. I can think of examples that they may vary. But the first one and the second one, the first one, 
more democratic states would be better. And the second one, um, democratic values are universal. I just can't think of examples that uh, countries, you know, state leaders would think um, more democratic states would not be better and democratic values are not universal. So I wonder, you know, like how you vary that. And another related question is that um, these ideas might be endogenous in the sense that in a possible scenario that the state leaders might um, already make the choice based on security considerations. And then they have to make up these ideas to justify their policy choices. That would be one possibility you have to, I think you have to work with. Yes, these are great comments. Thank you. Um, on framing with Wellington, it's definitely not an exact fit. And I've been going back and forth on to what degree I should keep him in here at all. The, as I said the, at the beginning, the idea of you can't have a little war is, is just mesmerizing to me. Why should this be? But if it's not setting up the puzzle effectively, then there's no point in using it. Um, in terms of little wars becoming big, being the outcome of the, yeah. That's a, yeah, I have to think about that more. Um, in terms of the variation on the, vari on the IVs, I have been thinking about that too. I think there's less room for variation when it comes to policymaker beliefs, because to some degree, don't most or all Americans think these two things. We're, it's inculcated in us. Um, I think the, it's much easier to find variation in the bad historical analogies variable. I might need to drill down further into the first two beliefs to see if there are ways to make variation more evident. In terms of um, your endogeneity point, the, um, this is one of the sticky questions, right? Um, how do you tell uh, self, uh, I guess it's the second one here. How do you tell security concerns from attempts to gain support for the intervention? And I think the, uh, the larger project includes, as I mentioned, this concern about why great powers double down when they're not getting traction with these ambitious goals. And I think one way to tell that a great power is really, really cares about its ambitious liberal objectives is because it continues spending and spending and spending to achieve them. I don't think that reduces the circularity. I don't think it makes the circularity go away. But I think it's an effort in that direction. Um, because if you're just trying to sell, if you're just trying to sell the intervention, here, this is a great idea. We'll be home by Christmas. Um, you, I think the rational policymaker is not going to be pouring resources into it necessarily. If 
Am I tracking with what your concern is? Or am I starting to babble? Slightly? <laughs> okay, I'll take your comments on board with great appreciation and continue to babble to myself. <laughs> so there's a follow-up. Um, so can you then extrapolate this and compare and contrast when small wars remain small? I would, I would argue U.S. intervention in Grenada, U.K. intervention in the Falklands. You know, that was, both of those were, I would consider, small. However, and a finite goal done. And if you're going to say those were small wars for the following reasons, policy reasons, intervention reasons, your political gains reasons, and did not spiral into the big, long, you know, extrapolated, you know, you know mire that, that, uh, that, you know, Vietnam slash Iraq slash Afghanistan have gone into, what's the difference? They did, policymakers did not set ambitious liberal political objectives. Yeah, Falklands is interesting. Thank yeah. you. That's like a UK example, if you want yeah. a UK thing. Yeah. And I, I just want to fault that, Professor. You've mentioned policymakers a few times now, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what you think the implications are of your work and, and what you think you'll be able to tell policymakers from your scope. Do you hope to find a big answer of, is intervention worth it ever? I mean, I'm, I'm very curious how ambitious you are of the, what's the so what part of this? How are you going to explain this in simple terms to the simpletons in Washington? <laughs> if I thought I could actually influence the simpletons in Washington or the super smart guys in Washington, I would be jubilant. I would be dancing a jig right now. Um, I'm not sure we have any influence, much less a lot. But the so what for me for policymakers is that if you try and set unattainable political objectives and you keep trying to attain them when you're not succeeding and you're not succeeding and you're not succeeding, you're going to pay a hell of a lot and it's probably not going to be worth it. So keep your goals attainable and that may mean keeping your goals modest and it may mean actually taking account of the other actors in the equation, including the conflict as an actor itself, the characteristics of the conflict, the target, et cetera. I'm going to take a chair's prerogative and, and do a, a two-finger here of myself. Um, <laughs> so I also was um, struck by the, so you're early in the project, and you have a cluster of questions that are related to each other. I don't know which one you're going to focus on or how you're going to scope that. But um, this distinction between objectives and outcomes, I think, is pretty important. And I see this tension in the paper so far. Um, and to me, the most kind of interesting question is the question of, like, why, why is this like a bad love song? Like, why can the great powers not just let go of these places? When it seems like, and this is obviously like a relevant thing to today, <laughs> Afghanistan, right? Um, and Iraq. And Iraq, right? Uh, you know, are there historical precursors to this? What are they like, et cetera, et cetera? And it seems to me that the, the goal setting, the, the liberal goals, seems to be part of your explanation for why these conflicts just don't end. And, you know, that maybe it's some kind of causal mechanism. And then the sort of, where do these crazy beliefs, you know, if they're crazy, where these 
liberal beliefs, whatever, where do they come from, you might get you know, these three factors that you're talking about. Um, but it's clearly related to the liberal objectives, but it does seem like a distinct question. Um, and I would, I'm curious as to sort of how you think those two things made and what other, um, what other hypotheses could expect or could uh, explain why we see this behavior that otherwise looks fairly irrational. Um, yeah, I think they're two separate questions. They're both questions for the book. I absolutely agree that one article can't answer both of them. Um, the core question for this article is um, explaining the variation in choice of political objective. So why they stay in or walk away, in the case of the Brits more often, is another chapter, another paper, uh, very much so, but uh, related, as you say. Um, why great powers can't let go. I love this, the sad love song thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of song titles as we speak. Um, is liberal beliefs part of why great powers just can't let go? Um, isn't there some, isn't there a 50s song about some boyfriend who goes out and drives his car fast and is killed and his girlfriend is singing about this terrible thing that happens. I think they were all in that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm thinking of it, but it seemed. There was definitely one about a girlfriend that was killed and the Oh, maybe that's it. Dog, I'm thinking there. Dead man's curve, she's Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to have to do some Googling for paper titles. You won't have trouble with it. Why do uh, great powers not cut their losses? Or why does the United States not, since the Brits are more willing to, uh, both during the Cold War and after? I think two leading explanations are sunk costs and fears of domestic political punishment. Um, we've spent so much, we can't just let it all go to waste. We've got to keep trying. We're trying to do something good. We're trying to help. We're doing something valuable for the world, right? That's an emotionally appealing set of arguments. Then the other one would be the fears of um, domestic political punishment. And I have not seen work on this, but I would like to see someone make an argument about whether this is even a problem anymore, given the all-volunteer force. Um, I am not seeing US leaders pay costs for Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, now, whether LBJ paid costs for Vietnam, we could probably have a fairly vivid discussion about. Um, did Nixon pay costs for leaving Vietnam? I don't think so. And I think, I think he was serving US interests. I would code that as a success, because it served US interests to leave. Um, so those would be the two things that I think of, think of off the top of my head. And one is very emotive, sunk costs. And then the other is very strategic. But it's an empirical question. And 
And uh, if anyone knows of work on this, I'd like to see it. And if not, I encourage you all to go write your theses on this. <laughs> Does that? Uh, well, uh, thanks, Jill, for coming, and, and um, I don't know, uh, urging, us, urging us to help you uh, figure out what your book's about. Um, it's kind of, it's always a fun thing to do. Um, so I had a couple, I had a, a, a couple of thoughts um, about what your book might be about. You like the Wellington quote. I like the Wellington quote. Uh, it has nothing to do with the rest of your presentation but it could make a really cool book. So I guess what I would urge you to do is throw away the rest of the presentation <laughs> and stick with Wellington, which is the question of why do, maybe it's great powers or maybe it's alleged hegemonic powers, Britain at that time, us, um, see their security commitments around the world as indivisible. Um, and, uh, you know, what he's saying is we can't afford to lose any war. Like, once we engage, we can't afford to lose this war because of all of our other security commitments around the world would then cave in. And, you know, it's the argument we use to stay in Vietnam, and, you know, it comes up over and over again. Um, uh, you know, there are people who've worked on this kind of question, um, but... Um, more evaluative, are they indivisible, as opposed to the question of why do the decision makers, which is your real interest, what are the beliefs of the decision makers, why do they get this crazy idea in their head? Um, you know, uh, uh, Kong's work may be the closest, and it's your analogies. Uh, but I think that could be a really interesting project. But it has nothing to do with this question of intervention and internal conflicts and the long slog of internal liberalization and, so if that's really what you want, and you know, you've done all kinds of interesting work on counterinsurgency and, and intervention in internal conflicts before, and if that's your thing, then you gotta get rid of the, the um, Wellington in the front end about there's no such thing as a, as a small war, especially because then it turns out in the rest of your talk about the interventions in internal conflicts, what it turns out you're trying to explain is why there are some small wars and some large wars. It's not true that there's no such thing as a small war. You say that sometimes they set ambitious goals and sometimes they don't. Like your whole project is built around not the idea that there's no such thing as a small war. Um, so I think you gotta disentangle and separate, decide what you wanna be or what you want the book to be. Um, I also think, uh, I was thinking about Cases, I kind of agree with Alana that you might want to think about, you know, all interventions in internal wars if you want to, and um, then you got to choose some. But if your goal is to show variation, the your response to her was about support for the insurgency didn't lead to a liberal commitment. Most often, that's precisely the variation you're trying to explain. Why is it, and one possibility, one theory, that you could generate, you'd have to generate a causal explanation to go with this, but the observed correlation would be when you're on the side of the insurgents, you don't set liberal objectives, and when you're on the side of the regime, you, you buy the hearts and minds story or whatever, and you think liberalization is part of the solution to the insurgents. Like, 
that's the variation you purportedly try to explain. So you can't just jettison these because of convenience. It's too much of a pain to study them. Um, I was also thinking about your two um, hypotheses, the rational one and the beliefs one. And I was thinking, if your real thing, um, both I think you're very good at this, and also it's interesting, and I think it's what you're actually interested in, is to, to do the detailed investigation to suss out the beliefs of the decision makers, really chase down what was going on. Um, uh, uh, you could lower your ambitions with respect to theory and do what you said you were going to do. You quoted the Van Ibra book that this is going to be just sort of an explanatory case about what was going on in the case and try to identify the actual decision makers' beliefs. Then you can jettison the whole theoretical superstructure because there's sort of an infinite regress of the possible theories to explain this that you're just getting lost in the morass. Get rid of that. Pick some cases that you think are interesting for the question of what did decision makers believe, basically where you're thinking, what the hell were they thinking? And then go find out. And maybe in the comparison to the rational story and the beliefs based, pick some cases where the rational story is crystal clear. So either where everyone agreed there is a real security interest here, or where everyone agreed there is no security interest here. And then look at the variation in beliefs in those cases. Focus on explaining the beliefs. And so I was thinking about like, I don't know, Greece at the beginning of the Cold War, where you got to, it took some effort to, to make people think we had to fight the Soviets, but when people were in that business, everyone agreed, well, yeah, Greece is definitely in, right? Um, and then you could, you know, compare it to a case where people believe there's no, I don't know, Somalia, where no one thinks there's a, a, a national security interest, but, you know, you got in, and then what were, the, what were they thinking? I think that would be a way to help you set aside the morass and focus on what you want to do. These are fantastic. And I think some of your points about the infinite regression go to some of the other questions about endogeneity. And that's really useful. And just a uh, quick note on, on Greece. I was interested to find in the archives that Kennan was writing at the time about how Western civilization would fall if the communists took Greece. Boom, that would, it would be all over. Mr. Pick Your Battles. That's fantastic. Thank you. Cradle of civilization in Western Europe. Of course, yes. Contagion. What is your name? It's Jason Kocha. Thanks for a big, for presenting a big, bold, interesting project. And the, the, the danger here is I'm going to give you book option number two. Okay. Uh, that's a great suggestion, but another option is liberal interventions. Why do they happen and why don't they stop or why don't they end? Seems like you're doing part one and part two, right? Yeah. And so I still agree with everyone. You need to choose. So I had a couple questions if you go with book option number two um, about the role of ideas and maybe yeah. you could just say a little bit more about how you're thinking about this or maybe their ideas to help as you. Um, the first is really basic, just to which is. When you talk about these beliefs and ideas that policymakers have, is this an aggregate set of preferences that you're talking about, or are these particular decision makers, key decision makers that drive the process? That'd be nice to know. Then I think more importantly is um, it was less clear, it was unclear to me in the paper in the presentation about sort of what the 
what they're choosing between. They're choosing between a liberal intervention and a non-liberal intervention, or a liberal intervention and something else. And so it would be nice to know what the repertoire of actions that are on the table, and then how ideas are pushing them towards, or making one, one option seem more attractive or less attractive. I think that's the underlying argument you're presenting. You said it's not a causal argument, but it's about how ideas constrain and, and make certain options seem more attractive. So it'd be nice to know what those options are. Yeah. Um, what, and I think reframing this based on the comments is probably, yours and others, is probably a good idea. But this is the menu, right? After there's a decision to intervene, then, okay, to what end? Um, so clarifying that would be a lot more explicit. Yeah. That's, the, that's the point in the decision chain you're coming yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought another aspect of the book as it exists, exists exists as an ideal type in my head right now, which goes back to Rose's question, has to do with the decision to intervene in the first place. It's another part of the whole chain. But there's only so much you can do even in a book, right? So to your other question, yeah, I have been thinking about in terms of policymakers as individuals, but it's an interesting point to think about the aggregate. Thank you. Yeah, just uh, as I was thinking, I don't really have a lot of comments now that are kind of in a different direction, but um, you know, I was thinking about the difference between a small war and a large war, and it seems to me when we're really interested in that particular country alone, it's much easier that the war has an altruistic purpose and that we manage to do what we want to do. But it seems to me, usually, we get involved in a country, not because we're concerned about that country, but because we're concerned about regional issues, and that we see them as, as a stepping stone to a regional, regional kind of thing. I think that leaves that country feeling like we're using them as opposed to we really have an altruistic purpose in that country. And I just think that that kind of that kind of makes a difference. You know, Vietnam was we didn't really care about Vietnam. I don't think we cared about Southeast Asia, the whole thing going. You know, Iraq. I don't know the, how much we cared about Iraq. You know, we cared about the Middle East and what Iran would do if you know they have those kind of powers. It seems to me that when our interest is primarily regional, then the target state, we look at that differently, and policies I think are harder to. That's a really interesting point. I agree. Uh, Vietnam, qua Vietnam, Afghanistan, qua Afghanistan. What do you think are target states where the U.S. or, or the U.K. interest was specifically the target state? I'm trying to think of what examples well, of that would be. One was now that's a small Bernita. one. That's a small one, but we, you know, we saw something bad going on there. We felt like some of our citizens were at at risk, and basically we toppled the military, I believe, there, you know. And I, I mean, that's really small. I guess I have to think about whether there's some other ones where we've, you know, been specifically more successful that were a little bigger than that. No, but that's a great example. Um, short but there's, and no, sweet. there's no regional concern there, you know. Thanks, yeah. Um, so I might 
this might be perfectly online with your argument and what you're presenting. Um, so it's not necessarily a criticism, and it might also be a misunderstanding of the scope um, and the argument. But I'm just curious of, it seems like the conversation to me is less, or should it be less about these results coming as calculations or decisions by policymakers because of these? Um, because of like your set, your three theories, or is it more as a result of this, the unique status of the past 50 years of the overarching goals that the liberal international order sets and particularly like that the US because I mean you keep saying UK a little bit and you said like I'm going to be more focused on the US but to me this just seems like this is driven by like American identity and like foreign relations and driven by the post-Cold War, War or, world order that we see as a result where the UN and the liberal international order. So how much of it is it being conflated with actual decisions made because of liberal intentions or just a, a part of the larger liberal international order? This is a really good question. Um, and I, I don't think, I always think if someone is confused or doesn't understand something. The problem is in the way I told the story. Um, it's, um, it's an appealing argument to say this intervention gone wild is a function of unipolarity, is it particularly that the US can do these things because it can, right? And that is the argument made most recently by Mearsheimer and earlier by a number of other people, including Mike Dash. Um, so you're on target. The thing that troubles me about that explanation is that the US identity, the US belief in the value of a liberal world system to itself and to the world also predates 1989. So that hasn't changed. We do no longer have another superpower. That has changed. Um, it, and yet both with one superpower and with two, we still see some interventions in which political objectives are very ambitious. Vietnam is the one we always come back to, incredibly costly for everyone, for the destabilize the region, a mess. Um, but there were also other campaigns which the, in which the US went in with very ambitious liberal goals. So we don't only see it post-Cold War. I did, I did the counting from Elizabeth Saunders' cases to see if one could argue that there was a tremendous increase or a significant increase or a non-trivial increase after 1989. And there are a number of cases that I would add to her list, probably because I would code them differently. But I think there's still a significant number in which there were liberal political objectives. And the US was ultimately successful in doing what it was trying to do, defeat the insurgency, but not in bringing in the uh, good governance that it thought was necessary to defeat the insurgency. So I'm not sure if I'm getting at the heart of your question. Am I missing? Okay, good. 
Okay, thank you. I, I actually would, um, so I, I took my your question to be, you know, this is a post-World War II phenomenon. Yeah, and I Not guess I said post-Cold War, but I, no, I, I don't sorry. think that I would X off 1945 to 1989, because I, I, that's why I didn't, I didn't use, this is like, I didn't use the word unipolar, but I didn't want to siphon it off to that necessarily, but to this more, I, I guess it would be more accurately post-war. I would agree with you. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we see uh, asserted interventions in Latin America at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. With uh, going back to the, the menu of uh, possibilities, with the goal of at least short-term political stability, we have the Marines taking charge of the government and so on, we see a lot less attention to spreading liberal values. Now, whether that's a question of capacity, whether that's a question of changes in US identity or self-perception or changes in the US role in the world, these are some of the arguments that people make about why we see variation over time. Um, but for me, I'm interested not only in the variation over time, but within variation, in variation during the same time periods, right? So we'll have X number of interventions within time period Y, and some of them are ambitious and some of them are less ambitious. That's what seems puzzling to me. So I think we're in, in agreement. Violent agreement? Somewhat, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. So, um, a little bit of a monkey wrench when you went back before 1945, which is interesting. Like, why mm -hmm. did the United States intervene in countries without a liberalizing agenda before the Cold War? So, like, I think it's trivial to explain this in the Cold War, except I can think of a few weird cases, right? But, but, but it's not. It's not very interesting to say. Sometimes we in the Cold War had a liberalizing agenda and sometimes we didn't because often when we didn't, it was because we had an anti-communist agenda and we cared about the Soviets and we, we shouldn't have cared about the Soviets. We were in the world caring about the Soviets and the times when we thought liberalization was important is when we thought that was the best way to beat communists, right? Um, and so the challenge would be to find a post-Cold War case of not having a liberalizing agenda, right, where um, you know, maybe there's just no variation post-Cold War because now we can truly indulge, as Mike would say, our liberal fantasies. Um, he might be about to say that. Um, but, um, uh, but, but so, you know, I, I, I was going to challenge you, just a simple two-finger was to challenge you to say it's not about variation during the Cold War, except you could find weird cases like the Dominican Republic, which was not going to go communist as the alternative. Um, so why did we have not a liberalizing agenda when we intervened in the DR in the Cold War? You know, that would be maybe an interesting one. But the other interesting ones would be the non-liberalizing post-Cold War cases to look at. Um, but it might also be non-liberalizing pre-Cold War cases would be interesting to try to disentangle. Um, uh, because, again, there's not the Soviet constraint. In fact, there's no constraint. With the ideological competition. The, yeah. We're hegemonic in the Western Hemisphere, so. Interesting. All right, thanks. Um, I'm trying to figure out why all your cases are liberal powers. Uh, there's 
there's not um, variation there, um, but there is variation um, in behavior. Um, and so the, uh, the, the question is, um, why wouldn't you want to have variation on a key causal variable? Now, one possibility is that it's not liberalism, that there's uh, something else um, going on. Um, but still, I, you know, it seems to me, if you think liberalism you know, by itself is an important variable, then it seems to me at least uh, one of the sets of cases has to have uh, variation on that. Now, there, there might be two exceptions to that. One would be if you make an argument about variation in the content of liberalism, this is sort of the Roger Smith uh, critique of Louis Hartz, say, you know, uh, there are multiple uh, traditions uh, in American liberalism. Another possibility might be liberalism plus something else. So it's not liberalism by itself, but it's liberalism connected uh, to, uh, to something else. And that in cases in which that something else isn't there, liberalism doesn't have this effect. In cases where the two are connected, it does have that effect. But I, I think it's the, with, without knowing, um, you know, exactly what the, your conception is of the relationship between liberalism um, and these outcomes, it's sort of hard to uh, identify uh, the effective case selection strategy. Um, so can you can we think through a little bit more you know, about where you're where you're at us? Um, let me can I ask a clarifying question? Sure. Um, so you're saying I should look at ideally uh, non-liberal great powers as well. Is that that was your first point? Uh, if you think that liberalism you know, has uh, this effect, then the obvious first step would be a liberal great power and a non-liberal great power in terms of case selection. But there are more sophisticated arguments that you could be making. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, think through in my own mind what would be a credible uh, rationale for looking only at liberal cases um, to make this argument. And one of those would be, well, uh, it's not liberalism per se, it's variations in types of liberalism. So maybe uh, British liberalism is different from American liberalism. Maybe American liberalism changes over time. You know, something like that, I think. I'm, I'm looking for variation. Yeah. Second possibility is Liberalism is there, um, and it doesn't change, but it gets connected uh, at certain points with some other uh, causal factor um, that brings it into play. And so the variation would be periods in which that other causal factor is uh, operative uh, or where it isn't. But I need variation. I need variety. Variety is the spice of life. Um, and uh, the, the case selection right now 
needs more than a dash of salt. It needs some Tabasco sauce to pile it on. Can I ask another way of clarifying? When you say a non-liberal great power, I'm totally with you, but what do you expect the non-liberal great power to do? So is the question, why don't the Soviets, when they intervene, try to create liberal democracies? Or is it, why don't the Soviets, when they intervene, try to reshape the internal politics of the state into which they're intervening? Like, would their albatross be, you know, communist ideology as opposed to liberal ideology? Um, is, the, is the challenge reshaping the state? Uh, I mean, that's, that, that's a possible argument. I mean, I think the, the, the liberal tradition argument, which I think she's uh, trying to plug into, says there's something particularly dumb uh, about liberalism. We keep hitting our heads up against the wall. You know, uh, uh, we did Afghanistan, and that didn't work out so great, so what do we do? We go to uh, Iraq, and we do the same thing. That doesn't work out so great, so, you know, Katie, bar the door. We're on the train to uh, Syria. 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 No, no, Libya. we're going to Libya first, right. and then and then Syria. So, you know, I mean, that's that's one possibility. But you know, the the uh, you know the the hypothetical or the scenario that you're raising suggests no that there are multiple idiotic um, sort of views of the world that could lead you to uh, to bang your head uh, against the wall. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of agnostic about that. Excuse me. The only thing I really want is I want systematic variation to figure out uh, what is actually causing what. And, and I was just, you know, trying to stretch a little bit and say, is there an argument um, that you could test just using two sets of liberal cases? Uh, not commending it. I was just. Was it getting on Liberal cases? Yeah. Different flavors of liberalism. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Okay, I was still focused on yeah. the Soviets. Or, I mean, you could throw in others. You throw in the Indians, right? The, 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 the French, who do not tend to try. I'm think, I've been thinking of France as not as a third case throughout the book, but as an interesting example to discuss because the French typically in Francophone Africa do not try and advance good governance goals. They go in, they want to go for political stability. Why do you mission civilatrice? They're all about. They were. It didn't go well for them. They learned. The French are a learning organization. <laughs> she couldn't resist. So it, it seems Sorry. to me that the challenge, I mean, the, the plausibility of looking at this is the fact that the United States is a big, big L liberal country and it's done lots of dumb things throughout its history and also recently. But the, but the challenge is to connect the uh, big L liberal piece uh, to the dumb things that we've done. Um, and that means uh, or requires establishing a discrete causal mechanism and also ruling out alternative explanations. One of the alternative, the obvious alternative explanations is the one that uh, Eugene raised, that there are a lot of just different dumb ideas 
out there that can lead people to, you know, to these uh, sorts of pathologies. I like that idea. My theory is there are some really dumb ideas out there. No, I'm teasing you. But I think the point about variation goes back to this earlier point as well. And it's something that I have been sitting and staring at my screen over, um, both specifically in terms of beliefs held by American policymakers. And I am narrowing down the question slight, the point slightly just to bring in the earlier point about variation with the three IVs I'm looking at. Because if you just stare at those three, you can say, OK, the real variation here is in the bad historical analogies. So that takes me to a less interesting place than I think I could go, which is that practitioners and pundits who are really bad scholars have a whole bunch of stories about intervention campaigns that uh, attained sterling liberal goals but really didn't. That's not that's not really a very interesting story to tell. So in terms of broadening my scope to be thinking more about variation in the broader sense, not just in terms of variables, but in terms of the whole project, um, I had started out thinking about looking at liberal states or Western states and non-liberal or non-Western states. Um, but I had a hard time fitting in the liberal beliefs to that because we don't see the Soviets going around. We didn't see the Soviets going around trying to set up liberal democracies. We do see them trying to do state building in the institutional sense. I mean, Afghanistan was a powerful example of this. They want to deliver public goods. They want to rationalize the government and its institutions. But it wasn't about liberal values. So I don't know how much further that takes us. I had not thought about India. Um, does it muddy the waters at all that in the last 18 years, all the interventions have been global war on terror related and already come sort of prepackaged with a very ambitious goal and a very transnational goal? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first few words. Oh, the uh, interventions of the last 18 years come prepackaged with global war on terror um, ambitions already baked into them, which are very nebulous, very transnational, and going to set the ambitious agenda beyond these discrete interventions. That were, like the interventions of the last 20 years have been. been Slightly different than your Vietnams and Granadas? Like, does, does that muddy the waters? It's, it's an interesting point. Um, if we think about the GWAT interventions, um, the hunt for liberal values for good governance comes out of the belief that what causes terrorism is non liberal or aliberal things oppression, lack of human rights, etc., and that thus the way to cure terrorism is to bring all these things to places that don't have them. Now, I, we can have a discussion about what causes terrorism, and I'm not sure I, I necessarily buy the illiberalism or not liberalism 
causes terrorism argument, but that's certainly the belief that I see since 9-11. Uh, are the GWAT interventions different from post-Cold War or Cold War? Because we have Cold War, we have post-Cold War, and then we have the GWAT era, right, post-9-11. Uh, if you think about Bosnia, if you think about Kosovo, I would code those as fairly ambitious. And the idea in both, particularly Bosnia, Kosovo probably less, was to create or recreate a successful multi-ethnic liberal state, right? That's pretty ambitious. And it's still not achieved. The political violence is way down. Yes. This is, I think, a, a good point in a different way okay. than you're I've gone off target. reacting. Well, I don't know if you've gone off target. What you're saying is interesting, too. But, but um, this is a non-analogy-based bad idea. And it might even be a non-liberalism-based bad idea. Right? We've accepted this you know, hearts and minds counterinsurgency strategy and as a, as a counterterrorism strategy. This is a bad idea. It doesn't always apply, but we've cookie-cutter apply it to all the GWAT interventions. Or we had a different idea in mind in the 1990s, which was multi-ethnic democracy. This is the liberal project, right? Multi-ethnic democracy is the solution to all problems. We're going to go do it. These are not analogies. This is not based on, hey, we built a great, successful multi-ethnic democracy 27 times before. This is a different kind of bad idea, the hearts and minds strategy bad idea that we've gotten fixated on somehow. And that's, so, I mean, it's still a, ideas, beliefs, just different from the ones you're presenting. I'm not, well, this is where I was going with your point. I'm not sure that the GWAT interventions, and we do see variation in the GWAT interventions, whether the GWAT interventions are necessarily all that different from the ambitious Cold War interventions. We see the goal of good governance, respect for all the, all the good liberal things we love, respect for human rights, and I do not mean to mock them. They are good things. Whether or not the United States can attain them for other people is a question. Um, Respect for human rights, the rule of law, uh, functional institutions, uh, civil society, et cetera, et cetera, free press, uh, honest government. Those were the ambitious liberal goals for those interventions with ambitious objectives during the Cold War, too. If you look at El Salvador, if you look at the Philippine Hux campaign, although the um, the Americans throttled back a little bit as they saw how unlikely they were to ever make progress with that. Um, I think all of the famous coin ham model campaigns had the same objectives as in Iraq and Afghanistan, and unlike Libya and unlike Syria, both of which are also US interventions, although without ambitious goals. So I'm still turning over these these ideas, but prerogative again. Um, so I'm curious what what analogies are available for the idea that 
the transformation of a society into a liberal state is possible and desirable. Um, the ones that jump to mind are Germany and Japan, but was there any analogy for those? Um, are those the only cases that policymakers are citing? Interestingly, Germany and Japan are, ter as you know, uh, thank you for the soft <laughs> softball on Germany and Japan. Um, I mean, I've heard people make that argument. They're terrible, <laughs> absolutely yeah. terrible. Um, but yes, they're often used. The others are the famous five from counterinsurgency lore, right? There's Malaya, the Philippines, uh, Dofar, El Salvador, and the Greek Civil War. In none of those cases did the intervening great power create a functioning democracy, much less a liberal state. So is there no case of that? Uh, well, Germany and Japan are cases of building democracies with very important existing conditions in the prior history of the states themselves, right? A lot more resources. Well, the, um, the GWA resources at this point go well beyond the Marshall Plan. I mean, um, Germany and Japan both had strong institutions previous to the regimes that the United States wanted to banish. They had a history of some degree of constitutional parliamentary governance. They're, they're research rich, educated population. Um, and here I'm going with Edelstein, right? The, um, they needed external help to rebuild. They had been absolutely devastated. The intervening power was committed to leaving, not staying, right? What? Still haven't left. But MacArthur's not still, still running Japan. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> and, the, and the Japanese are not necessarily too happy about the Americans still being there. What did I just see about China and Japan cuddling up? Yeah. So there are significant structural reasons why Germany and Japan were very successful and very different. And this is one reason, actually, why Iraq in the longer term might turn out well, or at least turn out better than we think it might. There's a history of constitutional governance. There was a well-educated society, thank you, sanctions. Um, so I have some greater hope for state development in Iraq than I do in Afghanistan. Well, on that, actually, some oh, what six o'clock? Uh, you know, um, optimistic. Uh, optimistic <laughs> comparison of you know the alternatives. Um, we're going to end our discussion for today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Great discussion. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.